Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, July 2nd. In today's news, new coronavirus cases topped 50,000 yesterday for the first time. Pfizer reports some encouraging early vaccine data. And President Trump is forging ahead with his dangerous fireworks show at Mount Rushmore. But first, the big idea. Anahi Ortiz is a coroner in Columbus, Ohio. Bodies have been arriving at her office in frantic spurts, as many as nine in 36 hours. But these are not people who have succumbed to the novel coronavirus. They've overdosed on drugs. She's literally run out of wheeled carts to put the bodies on. In Roanoke County, Virginia, police have responded to twice as many fatal overdoses in recent months as in all of last year. In Kentucky, which just celebrated its first decline in overdose deaths after five years of crisis, many towns are experiencing an abrupt reversal in the numbers. Nationwide, federal and local officials are reporting alarming spikes in drug overdoses, a hidden epidemic within the coronavirus pandemic. Emerging evidence suggests that the continued isolation, economic devastation, and disruptions to the drug trade in recent months are fueling the surge and the scourge. Because of how slowly the government collects data, it will be five to six months before definitive numbers exist on the change in overdoses. But data obtained by my colleagues William Wan and Heather Long from a real-time tracker of drug-related emergency calls and their interviews with coroners suggest that overdoses have not just increased since the pandemic began, but are accelerating rapidly as it persists. Suspected overdoses nationally, not all of them fatal, jumped 18% in March compared with the previous March, 29% in April compared with the previous April, and 42% in May. In some jurisdictions, such as Milwaukee County and Wisconsin, dispatch calls for overdoses have increased more than 50% year over year. When this pandemic hit, some authorities hoped it might lead to a decrease in overdoses by disrupting drug traffic as borders closed and cities shut down. The opposite seems to be happening. As traditional supply lines are disrupted, people who use drugs appear to be seeking out new suppliers and substances they're less familiar with, increasing their risk of overdosing and dying. Synthetic drugs and less common substances are increasingly showing up in autopsies and toxicology reports. Social distancing has also sequestered people, leaving them to take drugs alone and making it less likely that someone will be there to call 911 or to administer the life-saving overdose antidote, naloxone, also known as Narcan. Making matters worse, many treatment centers, drug courts, and recovery programs have been forced to close or significantly scale back operations during the shutdowns. With plunging revenue for services and little financial relief from government, some of these places are now teetering on the brink of financial collapse. Even before the pandemic, experts note that the nation's infrastructure for helping folks with substance use disorders was underfunded and woefully inadequate. Without government intervention, local officials and drug policy experts warn that overdoses and deaths will continue to climb and the existing system will be inundated. Advocates say that what's desperately needed is emergency funding to help keep afloat treatment programs, recovery centers and needle exchange programs. Medical associations have also urged federal officials to relax restrictive barriers to opioid treatments, such as bufrinoprine 
and called for wider distribution of naloxone. President Trump and conservatives have repeatedly cited the possible rise of overdoses and suicides when calling for states and businesses to hurry up with their economic reopening. Yet, of the nearly $2.5 trillion approved by Congress and Trump for emergency relief, they've designated only $425 million, barely more than a hundredth of 1% for mental health and substance use treatment. A hundredth of 1%. A hundredth of 1%. Natalia Deraviani, the uh, spokeswoman for the Medical Examiner's Office in Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago, says that if it weren't for COVID, these opioid deaths are all we'd be talking about right now. Last year, the Cook County Medical Examiner recorded 473 overdose deaths from January to June. This year, the total through May reached 656, with more than 400 additional suspected overdoses pending investigation. The county's forensic staff, already inundated by the flood of coronavirus deaths, has added shifts, and their folks are working longer hours to deal with the flood of incoming corpses from both crises. One epidemic began, but the other one never really stopped. Now, addiction, among other things, is a disease of isolation. As the pandemic has pushed massive doses of fear, uncertainty, anxiety, and depression into people's lives, it has cut off the human connections that help ease those burdens. Stephen Manzo, 33 years old, lost his job at an Irish pub in Mount Clemens, Michigan, after it was forced to close just before St. Patrick's Day. From the apartment he rented above the bar, he described the disquiet welling up inside of him, with nothing left to do but stand on the balcony and watch the empty street below. On March 20th, he told Heather that everything looks normal, but it doesn't feel normal. He had spent his early 20s struggling with a heroin addiction, it took huge effort and the help of family, co-workers, and two treatment programs for him to turn his life around. He secured a job as a cook and a bartender and discovered a gift for making customers laugh. Two weeks after Stephen talked to Heather about losing his job, he was found dead in his apartment from an overdose. His mother, Joanne, fought back tears as she described the rainy night that she drove to her son's apartment to recover his body. Talking to his friends, she tried to piece together his last moments. He and a younger friend, also in recovery, had been drinking that weekend and got bored. They bought $40 worth of cocaine and heroin, telling themselves they'd use it just one more time. Shortly after midnight, Stephen saw his friend out the door. His body was discovered two days later, sprawled out on the kitchen floor not far from his guitar and drum set. He'd been clean for eight years, but the virus took away one of the strongest forces in Stephen's life, the presence of people who loved him and wanted to protect him. Michigan, where Stephen died, now ranks third in the United States for the highest unemployment rate. At least one in five workers there are out of a job. Nationwide, more than 20 million are unemployed as we face our worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Since her son's death, Joanne has asked herself the same question over and over. What exactly happened? She knows in her heart he did not want to take his own life. This past Friday, she finally received the official death certificate. Under cause of death, it said acute fentanyl and cocaine. The autopsy took three months because county officials were overwhelmed with COVID cases. The pandemic also made it impossible to hold 
a funeral. So she had her son's body cremated. Joanne took the ashes and put a small portion into a heart necklace that she now wears every day. She knows how lonely her son felt during the last days of his life, and since his death, she's tried to keep him as close as possible. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration can help you locate treatment. You can go to www.findtreatment.gov or call this free helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 4357. Again, that's 1-800-662-HELP. There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting help if you need it. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the United States yesterday reported a whopping 52,789 new confirmed coronavirus cases, our largest single-day total since the start of the pandemic. More than 800,000 new cases have been detected in the United States in the past month, many of them in the Sun Belt, the states that were too quick to reopen. At least 125,602 of our fellow Americans are dead. Record-shattering numbers of new cases were reported yesterday in six six states, California, Georgia, Texas, Alaska, North Carolina, and Arizona. California Governor Gavin Newsom, amid the recent spike in cases and hospitalizations after early success against the virus, ordered 19 counties to shut down all indoor services and activities before the July 4th holiday weekend, meaning that bars, restaurants, and other businesses will remain open only outside. Pennsylvania ordered protective masks to be worn in public. New York City delayed the planned loosening of restrictions on indoor dining. Visiting Arizona yesterday afternoon, Vice President Pence said the federal government will meet Republican Governor Doug Ducey's request to send 500 emergency medical workers into the state because the health care system there has become overwhelmed. Houston hospitals are also inundated. ICUs in the nation's fourth largest city are at 102% of capacity. Doctors there tell us they're not worried about this week. They're worried about next week. Part of the problem is the number of really, really stupid people out there. Get this. Students at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa were throwing parties as part of a contest to see who could catch the virus first. They put money in a pot, and then they tried to get COVID. Whoever got COVID first would get the pot. Well, it worked. Alabama has now recorded 38,422 cases, an increase of 10,000 cases in the last two weeks. And here's something else that doesn't bode particularly well for schools reopening this fall. More than 40 principals in the Bay Area have been placed in quarantine after being exposed to the coronavirus during an in-person meeting to discuss how to reopen schools in the fall in Santa Clara County. Some areas are getting aggressive. On June 17th, a crowd of about 100 people, most of them 20-somethings, gathered for a party at a house in Rockland County, New York. The party's host then tested positive, as well as at least eight other guests. In an attempt to keep the cluster from growing, officials dispatched contact tracers. But those guests who had the coronavirus wouldn't talk. So county officials have now issued subpoenas to all eight who got the virus. If they don't comply and say who else was at the party, they face fines of $2,000 per day. Amid the surge of infections, lines for testing, especially in the South and West, are sometimes stretching for miles and miles in the summer heat. Supply chain issues that hampered testing from the beginning have improved, but they haven't ended. 
even as many states open sites that require no appointment or referral. Reagents, which are the substances used to carry out the actual tests, and pipettes remain in dangerously short supply in many places, and the machines that run the tests are expensive and time-consuming to build. There are also limits on collection sites, which are exacerbated by rising summer temperatures. Staff at a lot of testing sites, because they're standing outside in full-body protective gear, must rotate more often to avoid heat-related problems. Some testing sites have been temporarily or even permanently closing because of the extreme heat. Number two, an experimental coronavirus vaccine being developed by the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German firm BioNTech triggered stronger immune responses in recipients than those seen in people naturally recovering from an infection in a small study published online. This work hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, and it's still unclear what level of immune response will protect a person from getting sick. But outside scientists praise the companies for publishing this data on 45 people and say the results support moving to a larger clinical trial to test whether the vaccine is safe and effective. Although scientists still don't know what level of antibody protects people against the virus, getting it a second time, the levels found in people who have recovered are seen as a benchmark for some level of likely immunity. But as these companies race to find some kind of cure, the Trump administration is moving to weaken taxpayer safeguards in its agreement with the big pharmaceutical companies who are working on these coronavirus drugs. This could prevent regulators from curbing prices for future vaccines and treatments. Chris Rowland reports that Trump's appointees are employing a looser standard of federal contracting that avoids contracting rules to protect taxpayer investments. We obtain government agreements with industry under a Freedom of Information Act request. Normally, when government writes bigger checks, they get more leverage. But in this case, even though the government is making unprecedented investments, the Trump administration has given up all the leverage. What this means is that if you get sick, your treatment may cost you more out of pocket. And a new modeling study out overnight estimates that about 22% of the population, so 1.7 billion people worldwide and 72 million of our fellow Americans, may be vulnerable to severe illness if they get the virus. Number three, social distancing will not be enforced and masks will not be required when President Trump goes tomorrow on Friday to Mount Rushmore to host a fireworks show for 7,500 people. A decade after being banned amid concerns about wildfires and groundwater pollution, and despite protests by Native Americans and pleas from public health officials to avoid large gatherings, fireworks will once again be exploding over Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills of western South Dakota. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign is still reeling from the fallout of his Tulsa rally. Some advisors now recognize that that was ill-advised. The event has created a cascade of problems that have challenged the campaign and staff, many of whom are still stuck at home, either because they got the virus or were forced to quarantine. Campaign officials had previously said they were planning more large rallies soon, but the Tulsa event has led to increased concerns and internal debate over how and whether they can be pulled off. The Trump campaign had agreed to test its staff before the event, and a tent was set up at the site, the Bank of Oklahoma Center, that it was staffed by healthcare workers with equipment. But then people started testing positive when they were getting the tests. That situation made the healthcare workers who were there uncomfortable. And some say they thought the people who needed to be tested were not, especially once they saw that their colleagues were testing positive. And now Tulsa County, 
the site of the Trump rally, is seeing record-setting spikes of coronavirus cases ever since the Trump rally. About 200 to 250 new cases have been reported every day since the incubation period started after Trump left town. It is a cautionary tale to be smart as we head into this holiday weekend. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, July 2nd. We will not publish tomorrow in observance of July 4th. And just a heads up, I'm going to be taking vacation for the next two weeks to go hiking, fly fishing, and sea kayaking in one of my favorite national parks. I also have a box with two dozen books I'm quite excited to read. But rest assured, my colleagues will be filling in. Until next time, please stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. And please know how much I appreciate you. Six feet has never felt so far, but we'll all be together again soon enough with our friends and loved ones. Happy Independence Day. Let freedom ring.